Maybe I should have been, but like the challenges of the past few years, if I looked at the obstacles we faced all at once, I would have thrown in the towel. So instead, I took things one step at a time, solving each problem as it came up and then moving on. I had to do it that way. If I had looked at the project in its entirety, I never would have had the courage to start. That's a quote from Ken Grossman's book, Beyond the Pale, the story of the Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. I got this book uh, just because uh, the cover looked interesting, and I had heard about Sierra Nevada, but I had never really dug into the story, and it was a pretty interesting story. There's a blog post that will be up on uh, thewaiterspad.com next week with all my notes from the book, but there were some things that Grossman did that were just uh, so interesting and so fascinating. He had um, such a traditional entrepreneurial story, but as I read it, I didn't really pick up on the story. I was just following the story, but then as I thought about it, I realized how much Grossman had in common with so many other people that I've read about and studied. For example, Grossman has this internal drive. He has this motor where he's always going, he's always learning. And he said early on, uh, quote, I have always had the need to keep busy, not just physically, but also mentally, end quote. Later on in the book, he uh, writes that he was always busy at Sierra Nevada. And uh, looking back on it, he, he wishes he wouldn't have uh, neglected his family as much as he did. Toward the end of the book, he talks about his uh, succession plans at Sierra Nevada. And he says, I don't know if my kids will want to want to run this business. And this was in, in 2010. And since then, his kids have gotten more involved. But at the time, he said, you know, it takes a lot of work. You got to really be invested. You got to have a certain mindset and a disposition to be an entrepreneur and to run your own business. And I don't know if my kids have that. And if they don't have it, then forcing them into this company would be a terrible, uh, terrible decision. So Grossman is always going. He's always busy. He's always learning things. And that's part of what has made Sierra Nevada a successful company. Another thing that Grossman has in common with a lot of other entrepreneurs is that he's always learning. He finished high school, but I don't think he ever finished college, but he was always taking college classes. He was taking classes in machining and agriculture and welding and electricity and plumbing and things like that. Because early on in the Sierra Nevada history, he didn't have any money for uh, new dedicated brewing supplies. What he had to do was, was he had to go to uh, dairies that had gone bankrupt in California and he had to buy their uh, equipment, their used equipment at these bankruptcy sales. And then he had to go back to his own brewery and he had to modify those things so that it would work for beer. He got a bottling system that used to bottle soda pop and he had to make a lot of uh, modifications and adaptations to the system so that he could successfully brew beer in it. There was a whole bunch of things that he had to jury-rig to get them working. And it was part of a combination that, that uh, Grossman had the skills and the inclination to learn about him. And then the other part was the constraint of not having any money. So he was, he was really forced into this kind of a situation. He was forced into this solution that he came up with. But it ultimately, it worked out uh, really well for him. A third part of the book that I thought was notable was how Grossman approaches his business as an infinite game. There's a book that came out years ago called Finite and Infinite Games. And if you haven't read it, it it's pretty good. I, I, I recommend it. But Grossman has created a situation where he wants his brewery to 
continue as long as it can. And early on, that meant not expanding as fast as they could have. Demand for Sierra Nevada beer has always been greater than their production. And part of that is on purpose because Grossman has been worried about a contracting industry where if he builds out too far, he can get in a pickle. He says there's only two things that really bring down breweries of his size. One is inconsistent quality and two is borrowing money. So if he can be consistent in the beer that he makes and if he can avoid his um, avoid unnecessary expenses. He can he can keep on going. As his company has grown and been more successful, Grossman has been able to buy new brewing equipment, but he's also been able to take care of his employees. He has created a on-site medical facility that is free and available to all employees and their family members. There's a massage. Uh, room. There's a lactation room. There's also on-site child care. It's parent-run and there's a board of parents who supervises it and the employees are allowed to talk uh, to the board and tell them what they want and what they don't want. Grossman also reimburses his employees for continuing education. So he's created this environment where he wants the people that work for Sierra Nevada to continue to grow and develop his people and hopefully his that will translate into having the brewing company grow and develop as something that those people want to work for and as something that can have a, a good place in the world. In addition to those things, Grossman is very into the renewable energies. Uh, at the time of the book writing, he says that Sierra Nevada had one of the largest private solar installations in the world because he views the natural resources that he uses like uh, water and agricultural products like hops and barley as things that need to be stewarded they need to be taken care of and in doing this Grossman wants to continue his company and continue to do the things that that he's been able to do so overall beyond the pale was a really unexpectedly uh, unexpected enjoyable book it was something that I knew nothing about going in but there were a lot of lessons especially for people in small businesses or who want to start on something on their own one lesson that maybe wasn't explicitly stated but uh, was very clear to me was that Grossman was really lucky when he started. He started at the Nadir, the lowest point of microbreweries in the United States, and through the 80s and 90s and even into the 2000s, microbreweries have really expanded throughout the United States. So Grossman was lucky in that he started at a time when there wasn't a lot of competition, and that helped him get a foothold um, compared to somebody who, who may be starting now. The most inspiring video I watched in this last week is called Billions in Change. This is a video that was done by someone else, uh, we, someone we previously looked at in the podcast, Manuj Bhargava. He is the founder of the uh, Five Hour Energy Drink, and Bhargava has this uh, basically an innovation lab in Michigan where he's trying to create uh, situations. He's trying to create inventions that provide electricity for people and collect water and he's doing these things and he's sending them to uh, countries around the world like India because he he knows that if you can if you can power if you can provide power for people then then that allows them to do so many things and he points off in this video billions and change that imagine you didn't have electricity and that once the sun went down, it was just dark. There was nothing you could do. You can't get on your iPad. You can't use a Kindle. You can't even read unless you have access to a candle and books. And there's a whole host of things that are reliant on electricity. And if you can provide something 
simple like that, something very uh, helpful and important and key, then it's going to open a whole range of possibilities. And this video that's available on YouTube, it's like 45 minutes long, is really inspiring as, as Bhargava talks about the, uh, the different inventions that he's coming up with. Uh, this is a couple of my favorite quotes from that, from that video. Quote, My approach to things is, let's do stuff, make a difference in other people's lives, end quote. In that spirit, he reminded me of Dr. Paul Farmer. Uh, Paul Farmer is this amazing physician who splits his time between Harvard and, and Haiti, and he administers to the poor there. And, and when Farmer goes to Haiti, and people will, may, might ask him, well, is this sustainable, or is this something that is going to make a difference in the world? And Farmer's like, who cares? Like, I'm making a difference in a, in a person's life. This person right here, this may not be sustainable, it may not be expandable, it may not be scalable, but... But this little difference, this thing that I'm doing, works, and, and so that's why I'm going to do it. And that's the same spirit Bhargava says. Another uh, quote that I really liked, and this was also prevalent in the uh, how I built this episode that, that turned me on to this guy, was, quote, an expert is someone who knows everything that was, end quote. Bhargava's not, uh, not a big fan of the, of the MBA. He wants to talk to people who have more... Uh, practice doing things, and, and he wants to talk to people who, who see what can be, not was. And that's a nice distinction, because every time we learn something, we're learning something about the world that was. And, and things could change. We need to consider Chesterton fences and Gordian knots, and we need to think about how things could be in the future. Another quote that has come up um, many times, a surprising number of times in the books I've read, is this one. Quote, In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few, end quote. And it's, it's refreshing to keep in mind that sometimes beginners may be able to solve problems better because of the way they approach a situation, the options that they see. Another quote that I really liked from Bhargava was this. Quote, my work is my hobby. I don't really do work because I have to. I actually like it. It's my basketball and football, end quote. So uh, operating out of Michigan, uh, it's a state where there's a lot of college sports and professional, for professional sports uh, fans. But, but Bhargava says that that's not what I'm into. The thing that I'm into is the work. It's, I, like, I like working. And that's another really common trait to these people that are interviewed on podcasts and the books that I read is that uh, people don't think work is work. They enjoy doing the thing they're doing. Munish Pabrai put it this way. He said, would you rather read uh, income statements and 10Ks from companies or would you rather go see the Star Wars movie? And if you want to go see the Star Wars movie, that's fine. Um, so then maybe reading the 10Ks isn't going to be the thing that you're excellent at. Uh, so if you can find something where the glove fits, find something where work doesn't seem like work, uh, you'll be set up for... Um, you'll be set up for, for good results in the future. And I remember hearing this advice when I was younger, and, and I think the quote that was on some poster was, if, if you can find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life, or something like that. And when I was younger, my impression was that there was this intrinsic love of something, and I had to find it. I had to go out in the world and find the thing that fit like a puzzle piece to my intrinsic love. And as I've grown older, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think what's more true is that you love the things you're good at. So your work fuels your passion, and your passion fuels your work. And it's just this positive feedback loop that gets bigger and bigger and bigger over time. There's nothing internal. It's that you have to be good at something, and then you'll enjoy doing it more. And then as you enjoy doing it more, you'll get better at it. 
And so if you can find something that you want to improve at and then that you're pretty good at or that you're willing to work to good, get good at, like a beginning culture of a yogurt, if you can have that beginning nubbins of something to get that positive feedback loop started, that can really lead you to some amazing places. This past week, I also read a trio of books on communication and negotiation. The first one was Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. The second one was Getting to Yes, which is from the Harvard Negotiation Project. And the third one was Mission Blacklist Number 1 from Eric Maddox. Maddox was the interrogator in Iraq who, uh, who did the research and interrogations and negotiations that led to the discovery of Saddam Hussein. And in each one of these books from Chris Voss, the former FBI hostage negotiator, to this Harvard Research Project, to Maddox in Iraq, there's a few really common themes. The first is that you have to be an excellent listener. And this is so hard to do. I was, I was so, so hard to do. I, I would read these books and I would pick up my kids from school later in the day and then my kids would come home and I would think, oh, there's, there's something I need to write down or I have to text... I have to text the kids for um, the, the sports teams that are coming up. Or There's always something to do. And I would grab my phone and I would get my phone out and I would do the texting and they would be talking to me and I wasn't listening to them. It was just, I felt so stupid that here I had read these things and I had learned these things and I had taken physical notes on these things and underlined important parts and yet it was still so hard to do. So the, the first thing for... Any communication is to really actively listen, to listen as well as you can. In, uh, in an interview Chris, er, Eric Maddox did with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, he says that you need to listen so well that you build up uh, the second key point, and that is empathy. And Maddox says the level of empathy you need is you need to be in their head, so almost like you're at the wheel next to them, or like a driver's ed car where the person is driving, but you're there paying attention and you have some controls like over the radio and the and the thermostat and things like that. And so if you can build empathy, the second part is empathy, and if you if you can build empathy to really understand a person and to understand what their distractions are, what their hopes are, what their problems are, what their pressures are. If you can build enough empathy to understand how they're feeling, you can really guide conversations and you can really help both sides get what they want because you understand what you want and you understand what, what, what the other person wants as well. The third major thing from this trio of books among, among, on communication and negotiation. The first one is to actively listen. The second one is to build empathy. And the third is to get the other person to just keep talking. If you can get the other person to talk, it usually leads to good things for you. This was brought up in another Patrick O'Shaughnessy podcast. It was an episode he had with his father, Jim O'Shaughnessy. And I don't know uh, much about Jim other than that he's been a really successful uh, investor and author. Um, but what Jim was saying was that he had, he had heard that How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie had been recommended by many, many people, but he had never read it because it sounded cheesy. I have a copy of this book, and the cover looks as cheesy as, as the title is, but it's a really good book. And one of the things that Jim pointed out in his conversation with Patrick was that people love to talk about themselves, and if you can get people to talk about themselves, then, um, then they develop this rapport with you. There's this communication pathway that gets worn down. Just like a pathway through the woods will get worn down the more people that walk uh, along it, or like a deer path, the more deer paths there are. 
I remember we were in the Everglades National Park in Florida, uh, in the United States, uh, six months ago, visiting family. And these paths that the alligators and crocodiles took through the grasses and the marsh were huge. I mean, you could definitely very clearly tell with no training where these alligators and crocodiles had been and where they had not been. And that's a metaphor for what these different experts are saying about communication and negotiation. If you can get someone talking, it's like creating a path between you. And the more well-worn that path is, the more likely the chances that like a larger piece of information will flow from, from one person to the other person. And all of these books, Never Split the Difference, Mission Blacklist Number 1, and Getting to Yes are all books that, that I thought were very good and worth reading. They were all definitely... Um, all definitely recommended. One thing that, one other part, maybe it's a fourth part to uh, listening and negotiating well, is to uh, set your ego aside and try to be as objective as possible. If you can be objective and see the situation uh, for what it is, then then you'll get to a better negotiation outcome. Eric Maddox said this was hard when he was training people in Iraq, that they had to understand that a person may go from shooting you one moment to uh, communicating with you and then maybe ultimately leading you somewhere else, someplace you have to, to trust that person. And he said that was hard to communicate with people because uh, there was ego involved and, and people thought that this person was always the bad guy. And Maddox says that's not the case. This, this person may be the bad guy now, but then you know if, if they are willing to to help us, then they're going to be our ally. And that was hard for people. In, in, his, in his book, um, Chris Voss said that uh, he was often negotiating with, with uh, kidnappers and people who were just, just total criminals, total scum. But he had, to, he had to treat them like people. He had to listen. He had to empathize. And, and another uh, a part of this is that understanding is not acceptance. And if you, can, if you can get to a place of understanding without accepting what the other person is saying, if you can just understand and empathize and listen to what they're saying, not necessarily accept it, then that'll help your communication skills as well. So this trio of books, like I said, we're all, we're all pretty good. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes. If you have uh, any comments, there's a link in the podcast description. You can let me know. This episode was a little more unstructured. I just kind of went through my notebook and talked off the top of my head. So if you like the structured episodes with the uh, number tones that indicate uh, different concepts, you can um, follow the link in the description and let me know.